This morning we're going to be looking at Mary's prayer uh, that's commonly known as the Magnificat in Luke 1, chapter 44. It's on page 856. Now, if you don't have a Bible, it's a great chance to sneak out to the back and grab one. Uh, Before we get started looking at our passage, though, I want us to go back and imagine Mary as she's about to sing this song we're going to study. Imagine being in Mary's shoes. So what do we know about Mary? Mary was from the town of Nazareth, which one estimate I read said had probably four to 500 people in it. So Nazareth is small. It's like a little rural village. In fact, we normally have about four to 500 people in a sanctuary on Sunday here at Resurrection. So this is the town Mary was from. We also learned that Mary was a virgin betrothed to be married which normally puts her right in the teenage years, somewhere between 12 to 16. And finally, we know that Mary, unlike Joseph, Joseph is said to be from the line of David. Joseph's got a little bit more uh, prestige in his family heritage. Mary has unnamed parents, probably because they weren't very significant people to remember. So all this to say, Mary is a young teenager, from a small, very rural village, and she's gonna be alone when an angel shows up and tells her that she will be bearing a royal child. Now, if that's, if that's not interesting enough, things actually are gonna get worse for Mary when you think about it. As Father Matt and I uh, were talking about the sermon this week, talking about Mary, talking about how uh, Mary is betrothed and yet is going to be told she's now pregnant, Father Matt's words were, that's a dicey situation. It's a dicey situation. In, in Mary's time, to be pregnant and betrothed either meant that, like the Gospel of Matthew tells us, Joseph could divorce her quietly, which would be the best case scenario, or worst case scenario, she could be taken out by the village and she could be sentenced to death, perhaps stoned. So, so Mary's, Mary's in an interesting spot, to say the least. And yet, as we look at her song, if you turn with me to Luke 1, notice particularly verse 48. This line stood out to me as I was reading Mary's song. Mary says, For he, God, has looked on the humble estate of his servant. Mary's going to capture her current position as a humble estate. Now, that word translation is a, is a little bit soft. Humble estate almost sounds kind of nice. Like, wouldn't it, wouldn't it be nice if all of us were in Mary's humble estate? The word actually translated in other places has a little more punch to it. This is the same word for you have uh, seen me in my lowliness, in my lowly position. Or another word that's often translated for it is humiliation. You have seen me in my humiliation. Now, I wonder for you, as we sit with Mary in her humble estate, I wonder how you come in this Sunday, our fourth Sunday of Advent. I wonder where lowliness or humiliation might be for you. Maybe there is a job that you were really excited about, that you really hoped, a, a role in your job that you hoped would pan out, and instead you found yourself humbled. It's not going very well. You're feeling lowliness. Maybe for you, there's another circumstance in your life. The kids are not doing what they're supposed to. Excuse me, you're feeling lowly, humbled. 
Maybe it was a relationship that you were really excited about, you really thought would work out, and instead has turned away from you. You're just sensing this pressing weight, and it's hard to get out of bed in the morning. How would you connect to Mary's lowliness? For me, I go back uh, to me when I was 22 years old. I was just getting ready to graduate from college, and I, my wife and I both went to Moody Bible Institute. I was armed with a Bible degree, and I just thought the world was open to me. I was going to have tons of job offers, obviously, coming in from lots of churches who would clearly want me. And instead, as graduation neared, I began to realize with each passing no to job offers I'd sent in resumes for that I wasn't going to get a job in a church right out of college. So that was okay as I was nearing graduation. I found myself interviewing and getting a job offer from a Chick-fil-A that was just about to open in downtown Chicago. And as I processed this with friends, we all said, you know, Chick-fil-A is great, uh, it's a marketplace experience. As I was interviewing, they told me I could probably be a manager. And so sure enough, in a couple of weeks' time, I found myself working with the very lofty title of front of house director at a Chick-fil-A. It was a very high and mighty position. But unfortunately, things did not go well. As time wore on and as a whirl of circumstances surrounded the job, and as, to be quite honest, I found myself pretty young and inexperienced, a little naive, pretty incompetent. The job was not going well. I found as the months went on, things were going worse and worse. I made a couple big mistakes. Uh, the owner and I were having a lot of tough conversations, and after nine months of sticking it out at Chick-fil-A, I found that I just couldn't, I just couldn't keep going. I needed to leave. And so, leaping at the first opportunity I saw, I started working at a Starbucks nearby. There's nothing wrong with working at Starbucks, but I, I found myself working minimum wage, 32 hours a week, the 4 a.m. opening shift. And for the first couple weeks especially, I was too slow with the coffee to be trusted <laughs> to make coffee. And so I had a rag in hand, and I would walk the counters, wiping them down, I would restock cup lids, and then I would, every 30 minutes or so during rush, head into the bathroom to make sure that the toilet paper was stocked, and even sometimes to clean it. I was humbled. I was low. In fact, felt humiliating. Like, I had all of these hopes and expectations and dreams of what was going to happen when I graduated, and now I was here at the bottom, working, cleaning bathrooms. As, as we look with, at what Mary says in response to her humble estate, I was astounded. I've been sitting with this all week. Turn with me to Mary's song. In verse 46, Mary is going to proclaim in response to her own humbled estate. Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. I mean, this is, this is remarkable. Mary is humbled. She's anticipating a nine-month pregnancy where she's going to be the talk of her small town, where there's going to be nothing but whispers and rumors, scorn and humiliation. And Mary rejoices. She sings. She praises. Her soul is lifted up. The question this morning is, why would Mary rejoice? 
Why would Mary rejoice in her lowliness? Why would her lowliness be an opportunity for Mary to sing this incredible song of joy? What would be the circumstances that I, cleaning a bathroom in Starbucks, would sing this same song with Mary? What would be the circumstance for you listening to this song, whatever you're coming in this morning with your own lowliness, what would cause you to rejoice in your own humiliation, in your own humble estate? Well, I think Mary could rejoice because she saw the promises of God. In fact, her humiliation was the very opportunity that made her hungry to look and see that she could celebrate because God had made promises to her that were being fulfilled in her pregnancy at this moment. So let's talk about these promises. Look with me at verse 51. We're going to find the first two promises Mary sees here. 51. He has shown strength with his arm. He, God, has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He's brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He's filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy. Okay, so what's going on here in what Mary sees? First, the first promise that Mary sees is that the mighty will be brought low. Look closely at this again. Mary's going to say that the proud are going to be scattered in the thoughts of their heart. The mighty are those who are going to be brought low. The rich, in verse 53, are going to be sent away empty. Now, at this point, we might be wondering, how could Mary, this humbled, lowly, teenage, pregnant girl, how could Mary see such rich promises? What would, what would, Mary, what would cause Mary to be able to pronounce that the mighty are going to be brought low? Well, this is one of my favorite parts of the Magnificat. As you sit with it, as you read Mary closely here, what you begin to realize is that Mary is not simply a pregnant teenage girl. Instead, Mary is actually a theologian. She, she knows her theology. In fact, she studied the stories of Israel. She studied the stories of the Bible, of the Old Testament, and she knows from these stories that the mighty are always brought low. Think of this with me, the mighty are brought low. Mary probably was reflecting on Genesis 11 at some point. Genesis 11, there are these gathering of the nations, these builders who think they can set up a tower, a tower of Babel, in order to reach the heavens. And yet in their pride, as they think they're going to reach all the way up to God himself, God looks down and it says in Genesis 11, verse 8, that God scatters them to the nations. Mary sees the proud are scattered. Mary also probably looked at Egypt. Egypt, the mightiest empire the world had ever seen at the point when the Israelites are enslaved under them. And as Mary thinks about Israel's story, about how God intervenes, how God brings his strong hand in and casts Pharaoh down from his throne, Mary's going to see this is what God always does. The mighty are always brought low. Or perhaps Mary was reading the prophets. I, I love as I was sitting with this, uh, one particular line from Jeremiah, the prophet Jeremiah, where in Jeremiah 17, 11, Jeremiah is going to say, he who gets riches 
but not by justice. In the midst of his days, his riches will leave him, and at his end, he will be a fool. See, I think Mary was listening to the stories of Israel. In fact, it's almost like, as I was thinking of this, it's almost like what Lin-Manuel Miranda has done in the musical Hamilton. For any of you who have encountered this Broadway phenomenon, it's like he looked back and was paying attention to American history, to the start of America, and he's gonna weave together all of these stories into these fresh expressions, even weaving in some contemporary hip-hop and R&B. I think Mary's like Lin-Manuel Miranda, except better. <laughs> Mary is looking back at these promises to Israel, these promises of all the ways in which the mighty have been brought low, and she's gonna weave them together into this new song to capture what God is doing even now in her midst. Second promise that Mary sees. Mary sees that the lowly will be raised up. Look back at verses 51 to 53 again. And notice the other coupling that the Lord in verse 52 will exalt those of humble estate. Those who are humble like Mary are going to be lifted up. That he's going to fill the hungry with good things. Those who are yearning, those whose bodies tell them they need something. God's going to fill those who are hungry with good things. And finally, he's going to help his servant Israel. That word help is an image of almost bringing them alongside. The Lord's going to bring close his people Israel, those who are serving him. Again, I, I think Mary was looking back at the story of Israel, and she saw again and again and again how the lowly who serve and fear God are going to be lifted up. Think of David. We know David as the mighty ruler, the mighty king, but David starts as the lowly littlest son of Jesse. In fact, Samuel's going to look at David and say, surely not, surely not this lowly one. Think also of Micah, that Old Testament passage that Jenna just read for us this morning. In Micah, the promise is that this small town of Bethlehem, this insignificant town, is going to be the place from which the Savior and ruler of the world is going to come. Mary knew the promises of Micah. Think also of Hannah. Hannah in 1 Samuel 2. For any of you who don't know Hannah's story, Hannah was the second wife of a man named Elknaha, and Hannah found herself barren without children. And this actually caused her so much distress, particularly in the ancient world, that she would cry out to the Lord, and 1 Samuel describes it as her crying out from her humble estate, the same word, from her humiliation. Yet the Lord is going to hear Hannah, and the Lord is going to respond by offering Hannah a child. And when I stumbled across this, I was just amazed. First uh, Samuel 2, Hannah sings her own song in response to the Lord, and this is what Hannah says, First Samuel 2, 7 to 8. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and he exalts. He raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's, and on them he has set the world. Are you catching this? Are you hearing these themes that Mary is pulling together? It's almost like Mary, perhaps even recently, had been sitting with Hannah's song, 
She'd been listening to Hannah. She saw what God did for Hannah, that Hannah in her own hum- humiliation, her lowliness, that the Lord had lifted her up by giving her a child. And as Mary thinks about Hannah, she brings Hannah's words into the present. She says, these are promises for me. If God will bring the mighty down and lift the lowly up, then surely I, in my own humiliation, in my own lowliness, the Lord is going to bless. In fact, Mary sees she's gonna be called blessed for generations to come. Now, to me, as I wrestle with Mary's song, the question becomes, how will I respond to my own humiliation? How will I respond to my lowliness? How will you this morning respond to whatever loneliness, humiliation, or shame you find yourself in? For me at Starbucks, it was ugly. (laughs) I was disappointed, disillusioned, and felt in some sense like God had abandoned me. I just felt kind of unseen and unwanted. I think that's often what happens when we find ourselves lowly and ashamed. Mary, though, was able to see God's promises. She was able to look into the future and those promises of what God had for her, that her lowliness was actually that invitation for God to raise her up, became this well of rejoicing. She could sing. What would it take for you this morning to taste that kind of rejoicing that Mary knew? There's one final promise that I think Mary saw. And that is the promise that she received from the angel Gabriel previously in Luke, the promise of Emmanuel, this phrase that God is with us. Mary was told God is with us. What I love about Emmanuel is that the other two promises that Mary saw, that the mighty will be brought low, the lowly will be raised up, those are future promises. Those uh, include an expectation, a waiting, a, a need to look ahead, But here, Emmanuel is God's promise for the present. It's what God offers Mary even now in her humbled estate. I love if you look at verse 49. Mary is going to say, the mighty one, the maker of heaven and earth, has done great things for me. Mary's song is a response to what God's doing right now. God will do this lowering and this raising up, but right now God is with me. Mary's saying. And God with us, Emmanuel, is the very promise of salvation that Mary knew Israel had been waiting for all of these generations and that Mary herself was now a part of bringing. Think about the promise of Emmanuel for just a moment, that God is with us. The boldness of the claim Mary received from God himself, that God, the maker of the heavens and the earth, was now going to put on human skin. That God, the one who made Mary, was actually now going to be made in Mary, by Mary. That Mary was going to be part of giving creation, giving birth to God in the flesh. This claim is scandalous if you really pay attention to it. It's almost too hard to believe. In fact, the church for centuries is going to wrestle with what this incarnation means. How could it possibly be that God could come as close to us as our very own humanity, that God could take on our lowliness, that God could enter into the world as a baby. I mean, think of a baby. A baby is vulnerable. They're messy. They're 
dependent. God, the maker of heaven and earth, is going to come as one of us to be with us. Luther is going to, Martin Luther, the reformer, is going to scandalize the church in the Reformation by pointing out that in Jesus Christ, God wears a diaper. He said it a little more provocatively than that, but his point is well received. God with the diaper on is what Luther points to, and the church couldn't take it. A, a hymn captures this, I think, a little more poetically than Luther. A hymn called The Great God of Heaven that reflects on the incarnation. Tim says, a babe on the breast of a maiden he lies, yet sits with the Father on high in the skies. Before him their faces the seraphim hide, while Joseph stands waiting, unscared by his side. O wonder of wonders which none can unfold, the ancient of days is an hour or two old. The maker of all things is made of the earth, Man is worshipped by angels, and God comes to birth. I mean, can you believe that in God with us, Mary could see God, the maker of the heavens and earth, was now going to come as a child and be with us. Paul in Philippians, this letter to the church in Philippi, is getting frustrated because the Philippians are struggling to serve each other. In fact, they think that serving each other, maybe serving at the table, serving in work environments, serving in the home, doing the dishes for each other when they gather. They think that that kind of position is beneath them. That's a little too lowly for them. And Paul in Philippians is going to say, do you not see that God himself took on the form of a servant? That Jesus as God did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing? that he would come as a baby? I mean, if you understand this, Paul says, in verse 8, he's going to continue, being found in human form, Jesus humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. This is where the incarnation completes its scandal, that the mighty God, the maker of heaven and earth, would come so low in Jesus Christ, would come and embrace such humiliation by being with us in our humanity, that even the most shameful type of death, the most humiliating, exposing death that was available, God would take on himself for us to be with us. And that in the very humiliation of the cross, Jesus Christ would raise each of us up. That in his resurrection and ascension, that Jesus would take us with him, all who look to him and believe that we might be saved. This is the gospel. This is the incarnation. This is good news. And no wonder Mary saw it and rejoiced. But as I sit with this sign of Emmanuel, this promise that God is with us, this promise that God has come to his people Israel, that he's come as a servant, he's come as a lowly human being, I can't help but think that Mary saw very intensely that God was not just with us, but God was with her. I, I mean, imagine being Mary and trying to ponder in your heart the strikingness of the claim, that in God being with us, God had come to her through her womb, that for these nine months, Mary's going to be sitting in lowliness, in humiliation, as Mary's probably being whispered about perhaps even mocked, scorned by those around her. 
Every time Mary would touch her stomach, she would know that God was with her, there, pressed up against her. Imagine Mary, through the years of Jesus' life, looking at God with us, God with her. Any moment that she had doubts, any moments that she started to despair, she had this sign that God was with her. God was with her even in her lowliness, even in her humbled estate, even in her humiliation. God was there, pressed up against her, as close as her own son. I wonder for you, this Advent, for those of you especially who are holding that heavy, crushing weight of humiliation, whether you, like me, perhaps made choices that brought you here, brought you to the bathroom at Starbucks, whatever that looks like for you, or maybe perhaps like Mary, you have received this humiliation of nothing of your own doing. You've even been following God's will and this humbleness is placed upon you. If you find yourself needing a sign, the gift of the incarnation is that Mary points us to the manger and says, look and see, God is with us. God is with you. Even in the lowliness of whatever you're experiencing right now, God did not consider that lowliness too far to go for him to enter down with you. He is here with you, even as he was with Mary in her lowliness. And it's precisely here as you wrestle and as you hunger with your lowliness that God is going to raise you up in Christ. That here in the incarnation, God offers us the sign of himself. Come and die at the manger. Come and let yourself be as lowly as possible so that God might be the one who raises you up. I pray for you this Advent season that you would experience the promise that God is with you even as God is with Mary. I pray, especially for those of you who are in the midst of a trial of lowliness, that this would be the very gift of God for you, that God would be with you in your lowliness, and that in Jesus Christ, he would raise you up. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.